ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine how you feel when you're at a show or a movie of some sort. Now, you may not be a fan of shows or you may not go to many movies, but I just want you to imagine, right? So when you're at a movie and everybody's kind of chit-chatting, right? There's like little things playing on it, but all of a sudden the lights get dark, right? You start to feel something, right? You're starting to experience some sort of anticipation of something. Or if you're at a show, right? I don't know how many of you like shows. I, I'm not always the biggest fan of them, but I did get I did take Lydia to see the traveling tour of Phantom of the Opera a few years ago for her birthday because she loves that sort of stuff. And I was pleasantly impressed, right? Like, this is, like, it's not something that I thought I would enjoy, but I watched it and I was like, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be, right? It wasn't nearly as boring as I thought it might be. But anyway, to say, when the curtain's up and it starts to be rolled back, You start to anticipate what's coming, if you have any sort of interest of what's behind the curtain, right? There's something, something is about to be revealed, whether it's the movie or whether it's the show, whatever it might be, something's going to happen. And I want us to understand that this is kind of the weight, the the feeling of the passage this morning. That we're going to see the curtain start to be pulled back and start to reveal some things about Jesus and who he is and what he's here to do. Up until this point, John has told us in his gospel, right, he's told us from the beginning, Jesus is God. He was there in the beginning. He is God, but he also was, is the son of God, so he was with God. We see that Jesus took on flesh. We see John the Baptist witness about Jesus. We see Jesus and his relationship with multiple disciples and them following him. But this morning, we see Jesus' first, what they call, sign, or at least John's first description of Jesus' sign. And we're going to see this miracle that happens. Right, so we're going to discuss Jesus turning water into wine here at the beginning of John chapter 2. So we're going to start reading in verse 1. If you want to follow along, it'll be up here on the screen as well. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the first point I want us to hit this morning is not necessarily the miracle itself, but what initiates the miracle, right? What, what actually the request for the miracle, right? So the first point I want us to see is to have expectant faith, right? We begin the story by finding out that Jesus was at a wedding with his disciples and his mother is there. So this tells us that this is likely someone that Jesus and his mother knew well. You don't get invited to a wedding. The mother and son don't get invited unless the family probably knows you pretty well. And it's even possible that they may have known them so well that Jesus' mother was part of the catering help. Right? She's the one who knows that they ran out of wine and comes to him and tells him. So she somehow has knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes. So she comes to Jesus and tells him, the wine is gone. Now this is a difficult thing. For us, we may not understand it, right? Because for us, the wedding happens and then there's the reception, then you go home that night. For their time and age, the celebration for the wedding was a week long. So you run out of wine, and the wedding happens at the end of the celebration. So you celebrate for a week leading up to the wedding. So now all of a sudden, you're however long into the celebration and you're already out of wine. There's two problems here. First one is for the groom and his embarrassment. It was the groom's responsibility to provide the wine. Now he's embarrassed that he's run out. Right? So this is why Jesus' mother comes and says, could you save him from embarrassment in a sense? Could you help us? Could you do something? But here's the second problem, and we may not understand this fully either. There's a potential lawsuit here. It was actually allowed to sue the groom, for the bride's family to sue the groom for poor hospitality if he ran out of wine. Now, we don't understand that, but here's two major problems. Not just his own embarrassment, but now he's getting off the wrong foot with his in-laws, right? Not a good way to start the marriage. So Jesus' mother comes to him. And she knows that he's left home at this point, right? Right? He's no longer living with her. He's now on his own mission. The mission she's known from the beginning, right? And she comes to him and says, they have no wine. And Jesus turns to her and says what we might consider to be rude. But it's not. If you understand the language in this this culture, what he says isn't rude, but it is a slight rebuke. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He says, Mom, I'm on a heavenly father mission now. I'm no longer under the directives of my earthly mother. I have a bigger mission now, and this wedding running out of wine is not part of that mission. This is not what was meant for me. This is not what I'm, I'm pursuing after now. And then he goes on even and says, it's not my hour yet. This is going to be a phrase that John uses throughout his gospel to talk about the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection. So he says, it's not my time. It's not my time to die. It's not my time to reveal myself. It's not, it's not my time for all of this yet. However, we see that 
Jesus still uses the situation to point to his hour. We'll see how he gets there. But look at his mother's response. She's just been rebuked by her son, in a sense, of, I'm not living under your directives anymore. I'm living for my heavenly Father. And she knows this, right? She's known that Jesus was meant for a higher purpose, right? She has to, from the get-go, from his conception by the Holy Spirit. And from her raising him, and he's someone who has never sinned before. Can you imagine raising a child that has never sinned before? So Mary has an understanding here. This is not like anyone else, and now he's on a mission. He's out of my house on a mission much better than anything I could ask him to do. But she still has a faith that expects him to do something. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She's anticipating Jesus to still do something. Even after all he just said to her, she still is expecting with her faith Jesus to do something. Think of it kind of like we're approaching Christmas now, right? Anybody have kids that could not sleep the night before? Why is that? Because they're anticipating something. They're expecting there's going to be something the next morning. No matter how many times you've threatened them with coal. (laughs) Right? No matter how many times you've told them they're bad throughout the year. No matter how many times they've been rebuked. They still go to bed that night expecting something the next morning. Living with anticipation. In a similar way, even after Jesus' slight rebuke, his own mother still anticipates with her faith, still expects that he's going to do something. So, brothers and sisters, true faith is faith that expects God to reveal himself, to stir hearts, and to act in our world. When you approach God whether it's reading the Bible for yourself, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in a group Bible study, or whether it's in hearing the sermon on Sunday morning, you should approach him with an expectancy for him to reveal more of himself to you. This is not that you have some sort of revelation apart from Scripture, but we understand that in Scripture, God reveals himself to us. So we should expect to see more of him. Or when you walk in relationship with God, you should do so with an anticipation to have your affections stirred. You know that you're called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. But when you don't walk with Him, you experience what some call spiritual dryness. But when you do walk with Him, you should have an anticipation that you're going to feel something. Right? Our faith can often become this stoic mentality where we just kind of sit here stone-faced and act like we're not feeling anything in the midst of worship or in the midst of God's Word. God created you with feelings. He created you with emotions, and He wants you to feel something towards Him. He wants you to feel love 
joy, peace, worship towards him. So when you face all sorts of circumstances of life, good and bad, you should be looking, expecting to find God acting in those situations. It doesn't mean that he's going to act the way you thought he would or the way that you prayed for. But you still are to live with the expectation that he's doing something in your life. You should see that when somebody gives you a kind or encouraging word, that that's God's display of grace to you. Or you when you hear a co-worker's conversation turn spiritual, you should hear that and say, there's God's opportunity for me to share Jesus. Or in the midst of losing a loved one, you should expect God to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. That doesn't dismiss your grief. But it's a peace that surpasses your grief. True faith is faith that expects chances to walk deeper with God, even in the smallest moments of your life. And we see here that his mother's faith was not ignored. Jesus responds with a miracle that has all sorts of meaning to it, which leads us to the second point, which I call the sign of wine. Now we have to understand that this portion, just these 11 verses, have all sorts of Old Testament language to them, in a sense. Some of it's more explicit than others. But the point is that this wine is meant to point us to something bigger. There's a sign going on here. It's pointing to something bigger and better than just wine. right? Some people want to argue about this passage of whether there was alcohol or not in the wine whether they drank or not, in the Bible. Now, let me just clear this up for you. Their wine was fermented, point blank, right? They drank at celebrations their wine, which was fermented. But also, on the other side, their wine was diluted by either one, one, three parts water to every one part wine, up to ten parts water to one part wine. Right? So, it was completely different than anything we have today. So, we have to understand, yes... Their wine had alcohol content. It was nothing like what ours is today. That's not anything to say for or against drinking. We're not going there today. The whole point is, that's not what the point of the story is. I just wanted to clear it up for you, that both sides kind of go to the extreme either way. But that's not the point of the story. Jesus is trying to point to something much more Important. Just look at the beginning of the passage, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. We see two things already right there. First of all, on the third day. Is there any significance in the New Testament on what happens on the third day? Is there any significance in the Old Testament on what happens on the third day? There is. Now, we're not going to walk through all of them, but there are situations in Abraham's life, Moses' life, Joshua's life, and David's life, all of which happen on the third day. Also, this happens at a wedding. Let's not forget that all throughout the Old Testament, we have language of marriage between God and Israel. There's this marriage language used of of Israel's being adulterous. That there's this covenant that's meant to be between God and Israel, and Israel's breaking that covenant. 
So let's hit some key elements of what Jesus is really trying to show us in this miracle. First one is he's showing us that he's going from barrenness to abundance. Right? Look at verse 4. Or rather, verse 3. She comes to Jesus, right? The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now we hear this and we think simply, they ran out of wine. Which is true, right? This is not that this, this story isn't true. But the point is, if we look all throughout Israel's history, there's a, there was an emptiness to them as well. The, the barrenness of the wine is figuratively talking about the barrenness of Israel in a spiritual sense. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel has barrenness. She continues to run after idols from other nations, and it leaves her empty. Let me just read this passage to you. And it should be up on the screen as well. Micah chapter 6, verse 12. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. You catch it here? Israel's living in wickedness, and God says the judgment for that is you're going to live in emptiness, in barrenness. You're going to tread the grapes, but you get no wine. There's an emptiness to Israel here because of them living in sin. So, and figuratively, the wedding running out of wine displays Israel's barrenness. By the time Jesus comes onto the scene, we know that the Jewish religion is kind of this cold-hearted mentality. That it's just kind of become routine to people. That there's no fire lit inside of them. There's no passion about what they're doing. Except for maybe the Jewish leaders who are so consumed with the law that they miss Jesus even. But then Jesus, in this miracle, is pointing to the kingdom he is ushering in, which is a kingdom of abundance. It's no longer barrenness, but abundance. Look at verses 6 and 7. Now, there were six six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons, filled to the brim. Shooting high here, 180 gallons of wine. That's more than any wedding celebration could ever need. In a sense, Jesus is not just giving enough for the celebration week here. He's adding a wedding gift to the couple on top of it. Jesus is saying here, everything that's been empty and barren, I have abundance in what I'm bringing. I have more than enough in what I'm offering. And not just the quantity of it, but the quality of it. Verse 10. The master of the feast says, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Had the groom kept the good wine until now? He hadn't. He'd run out. 
He was giving his best wine. It just shows us, though, that even the best wine that this earthly groom could offer, Jesus offers one that is so much better in his kingdom. So his abundance is not just in quantity, but in quality as well. Jesus is pointing here to say that the spiritually dry way of life is beginning to take a turn upon his entering into the world. By him, there is a new kingdom at hand, and it is a kingdom of abundance. The Old Testament talks about this day. Let's look at one more passage there. Joel chapter 3. Just a couple of verses here. Just listen to this and see if you catch what's going on. The future of Judah here. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. The mountains will drip with wine. That glorious future for Judah is a day. We're figuratively talking here, right? The mountains are so abundant with wine that wine is dripping down from the mountains. And here we have Jesus with 180 gallons of wine. Do you see the connection here? Jesus is ushering in this beginning of this new age, the beginning of this new kingdom that they had looked forward to in the Old Testament. So we see that we go from a barrenness to abundance. We also see Jesus go from old to new. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. What does Jesus use to turn the water into wine? We see six stone water jars, but what are they used for? The Jewish rites of purification. Right? We know that the guests would have entered into the wedding celebration and washed their hands in this. The dishes would have been cleaned in this. Because the Old Testament had laws of what purification looked like, right? And the, the water was involved in order to purify yourself and purify the dishes. So there's this old way of life, this old this law about purifying yourself through water, through sacrifices. We know that. But Jesus has all these containers filled with water and turns it into wine. And we see what does the wine point us towards. First of all, a new kingdom, a kingdom of abundance, right? But also, probably a little more understandable for us, what does wine point us to? Communion. Jesus will one day, in the future from here, lay down before his disciples and say, this wine that you're drinking represents my blood, which is shed for you. Do you catch what Jesus is doing here? He takes the Jewish rites, the Jewish stone jars for purification, 
filled with water, turns it into wine in order to say, there's a new way of purifying yourself. I'm ushering in a new way of purification. You no longer have to wash your hands in order to be spiritually clean. You have to now trust in the death of the Savior to be spiritually clean. Jesus is pointing that the old age is coming to an end and a new age is starting to begin. The purification water will no longer be necessary because the blood of Jesus will have been shed. The old way of cold, distant laws now shifts to a new way of a fire and a zeal and a passion to walk directly in relationship to God, no longer by purifying yourself with water. And then the third thing we see in this is that Jesus is a perfect, the perfect bridegroom. We see that the bridegroom failed in this. He ran out. Jesus provides for him so that he now has what he needs plus more. But even more than that, Jesus is saying, I'm not just someone who can give wine to a wedding, but I'm someone who can fulfill every need you could possibly have. The kingdom I'm ushering in can meet any need of any person that could ever exist. I am the ruler of this kingdom, right? This is my kingdom. This is God's kingdom being ushered in that he has abundance and can fulfill every need. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Right? Jesus, in the midst of that, Jesus is talking about not being anxious about your clothes or or your shelter or your food. He says, instead, seek my kingdom first, seek God's kingdom first, and all of this will be given to you. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's saying, I'm the perfect bridegroom. I have an abundance for you. Seek my kingdom first, and you'll have all of it at your hands. Not that that it's all material blessing, but he's saying all of it is in his hands, and he is able to dish out to whoever, whenever he wants. Jesus has more than enough to provide. And this is the first sign we see. I was a... taken Albert with me to go grocery shopping up in Aurora a couple weeks ago. Now, I'd never been to Aurora before, so um, I'm still finding my way around places here, but I saw a sign I'd never seen before. It was a big sign, one of those small towns you drive through on the way there. It's this big yellow sign with a picture of a cow on it. And I've never seen that before. I've seen deer crossing signs before, but I have never seen a picture of a cow on a sign before. Never. This was new to me. But the point was abundantly clear, wasn't it? Be on the lookout, because there's probably a bunch of cows nearby. But here's the point. The sign was not the end goal. I would have missed it if I would have simply said, look how bright that sign is. Look at the detail they gave to the picture of that cow on that sign. The sign is meant for me to keep on the lookout for something coming. 
right? It's something yet to come, the cows in that situation. The point here is that Jesus' sign of turning water into wine is not simply Jesus can make wine whenever he wants. The point is that he's pointing us to a cosmic shift in his arrival. That there's a new kingdom at hand. That this is a kingdom of abundance. It's a kingdom that's going to offer salvation by his blood, no longer by the blood of animals. It's a kingdom that is the best kingdom. Right? Just like he said, this is the best one. You've, you've now given the best wine at the end. This is the best kingdom that has ever come and that will ever come. So brothers and sisters, trusting in Christ means we leave our kingdom to enter into his. We all want to be our own kings. We all want to be rulers of our own kingdoms. We all want to be in charge of everything. We want to dictate how people act around us. We want to control our own time. We want authority over our own money. But when you trust in Jesus, you're entering into a different kingdom. It's a kingdom of abundance. It's a new kingdom. But it's also a kingdom where he rules, not you. It's a better kingdom, but it's a kingdom that requires you and I to leave our kingship at the door. And then as we get to the end here, John gives a final summary in the last verse of what Jesus is really doing here. Verse 11, we see that he is revealing glory. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now we know that this is true from what John already told us all the way back in John 1.14. Do you remember this? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've already been told Jesus is going to display the Father's glory. Now it says that Jesus was manifesting glory here. But look at the end result. Manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Revealing glory is meant to lead people to belief. They were already following him, but now we see belief. We see faith come into play. You see, the servants, it says, knew what Jesus had done, but we see no reference to the faith of the servants. We see no reference to them seeing glory. All we see here is Jesus was manifesting glory, and the disciples believed in him. The disciples saw the glory, and it led to their faith. Paul gives further explanation of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me just read this to you. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You notice here, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of people so they cannot see the glory of God. 
But as the gospel of Jesus is shared, God shines his light in that and removes the blinders so now people can see his glory. So here we see Jesus displaying glory and the disciples see it and believe in him. Have you ever watched one of those videos where like there's a baby born that like can't hear and then they finally put an ear monitor on it for the first time? Or somebody that was like colorblind for 40 years and they have glasses now they can put on and see colors? You ever get emotional watching those videos? Why? Because there is a beauty to watching someone experience a new reality they've never experienced before. That's what Jesus is pointing to here. He's saying there's a new kingdom, there's a new reality, there's a, there's a glory here. And that's what God does throughout the whole entire Bible. God is revealing his glory to us, to you and to me. So we have to ask the question, is if God is revealing his glory, how are we responding to it? Because, brothers and sisters, the revealing of God's glory should be constantly causing you to step deeper into your faith. If you do not see God's glory in this miracle, or in Jesus, or in the Bible at all, you have to start to question whether you have faith or not. Because when you come to God's word, you should see more of his glory. When you speak God's word to your family and friends, the glory should be resonating in your heart. When you sing it at church or at home, your heart should be leaping with joy at the thought of God's glory. It's in this experience of seeing more of God's glory, specifically in Jesus, it's in that experience that you will begin to see more and more of this kingdom Jesus is ushering in. It's in seeing more of God's glory that you will develop more trust in Jesus and more desire to seek his kingdom. It's only in that moment that you will approach each moment of your life with expectant faith. Faith that sees God's hand at work throughout your day. In your own heart, and in the lives of others. You will wake up with anticipation to see what glory God is going to show you about himself that day. What truth of his word is going to resound in your heart. What opportunities you're going to find to speak about him throughout your day. So let me end with a question this morning. Do you see it? Do you see God's glory each day? In his word, in the beauty of creation, in the love of your church family, in the hope of the gospel that you offer to others, do you see it? If you don't, may I urge you this morning to trust in Jesus so that you might see God's glory. I would urge you this morning to give up your own kingdom for his. To give up your own way of whatever you think you can do to make yourself right with God and understand it's only by the blood of Jesus. But if you do see God's glory each and every day, may I urge you in this way. Live each day anticipating to see more of it. Have faith that expects God to reveal his glory to you in your own heart 
and in opportunities to share the gospel with others. May you see more and more of who he is, more and more of his glory as you live each day expecting, anticipating him to show you more. Let's pray. Father, remove the blinders of our hearts that even if we see your glory, that we would see more of it. May our hearts be exposed so that we may see your glory. And as a response to seeing it, may we approach each day with an expectancy to see more. May we see the beauty of the kingdom that Jesus is beginning to usher in here. May we understand that this is a transforming way of life. That this is a cosmic shift in the tides as the new kingdom of abundance. Of the gospel of Jesus, of his death and resurrection is at hand. May we each and every day forsake our own kingdoms that we might seek yours. That we might trust Jesus more deeply. That we might see more of your glory. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.